Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Bob Left Sets podcast, recorded live here at the TuneIn Studios in Venice, California. My guest this week is America, probably the world's most famous drummer, the man you recognize from Mellencamp, Fogarty, so many other acts, Melissa Etheridge, the Kennedy Center Honors, Kenny Aronoff. How you doing, Bob? Okay, so it's hard to find a date because you're so busy. Yeah. So what do you got going on right now? Well, tomorrow I'm flying to Chicago to do a the Chicago Drum Show. It's, it's where a lot of drummers perform, and I don't do as many of those anymore. But what I'm going to do, I'm one of the featured drummers, is I'm going to uh, use my... Uh, I'm going to perform, but I'm also uh, doing a kind of a teamwork speech because it, it really is what drummers are. We serve songs, we serve artists, we serve bands. And so I, I have a whole multimedia thing I do. So I perform, but you I You have also, a whole show. I have a whole show. Okay, you put it together yourself or you had a consultant? No, I put it together myself, but I've been working with... Uh, about four or five years ago, I decided to start getting into the speaking thing, you know, and it, like anything else. Okay, I, was your motivation giving back or money or both? Making money and okay. giving and giving back wisdom. <laughs> Is that okay? That's for cool. Uh, so I'm just I'm, asking. I'm just mean, getting all this story down. Yeah. So anyway, I uh, because that's so important to me, I decided, and I've been doing these drum clinics for like 35 years, but now it's more about inspiration. When I wrote my autobiography, I came up with all these things. Anyway, the bottom line is I'm going to go do that and fly back Sunday night. Monday I pack, and then I go on the road for six weeks with Fogarty nonstop uh, and ZZ Top together. It's a great package, mostly the East Coast and a little bit in the Midwest. Then I come home for two days, and then I go to Europe for three weeks with my own band called Supersonic Blues Machine featuring Billy Gibbons. And the two albums I made with Supersonic— uh, you know, we feature, like, guitar players like Billy Gibbons, uh, Steve Lukather, Eric Gales, Walter Trout, Robin Ford, uh, Warren Haynes. I really, to be honest with you, am, I don't really want to go on the road for nine weeks. I mean, you know, I, I have a wife at home, and I like to—this is the first time I ever said that. You know, I, I always was like, well, whatever. But so, yeah, that's a pretty crazy schedule, on top of which— you know, I'm editing a book, another book, and I got to keep the speaking thing going, and I'm just dealing with lots of business sessions and all this stuff while I'm on the road. Now, um, do you like this level of chaos? Well, I definitely have been addicted to it most of my life. I'm just starting at my right, as we were talking about how we're now 27, kind of getting into, hmm, how do I want to manage my time? You know, what are, you know, what are my, what are the things that mean the most to me? And I'm trying to filter my time and what I do in the day toward those things now. I let's, know- let's assume you were home for a week. Or let's say you went to a desert island for a week. Would you freak out or would you say, God, it's great to have a week off? Uh, for the first time, I would. what I would do in one day, I, I can't take a whole day off, but but I can, knowing that I have some time during the day to have off, then I, you know, I always have work with me. So it kind of like I reward myself. I work a little bit. I just won't work as much as I would in the past where I just work all day and then just look out at the beach. Now I want to get on the beach, you know, <laughs> or hang out or go shopping with my wife or whatever it is. It just relaxes the mind. And, you know, uh, I, I always have to be – when I get on a plane, there's two things I do. On a, well, three things. Sleep, uh, my office, and I like to watch movies, you know, so – like you that. watch them on the iPad? Do you download them there? No, I do. Well, more and more so becoming that. You know, you're on United, and then they say download our app, and then you get more more. But right. then 50% of the time it doesn't work. Right, right. It's like you're like, 
Well, the big thing now, you know, is Netflix you can download to the iPad, so you don't have to worry about a connection. So uh, how far out are you booked? I'm booked already. Someone tried to book me. They're trying to book me to be the musical director for this event in 2019, and I'm trying to hire Sammy Hagar to do it with me because then I, 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 I've been getting into this musical director type thing where, uh, you know, a huge, you know, wealthy guy wants to put on this huge event, and I end up being the musical director, and it, which is it's tedious and a lot of work. Everything from monitors to, you know, the, the, the schematics of, of, of the each band and how many mics and how high the stage is and or how high the risers i mean it's just everything so what does your wife say about being on the road all the time uh well we haven't been on the road six weeks or nine weeks since we met which was 13 years ago so we're not looking forward to that at all but um she is finishing up a three-year nursing school uh this nursing program is like med school it's i've Never seen anything like it. It's, it's kind of cool. My first marriage, I was with somebody who was in law school, and I thought that was insane. Now I'm, be- I'm in my my marriage with my wife, and I'm watching her go through this. I just would like to be here with her, but it is what it is. We'll, 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 get, we'll be fine. And did your first marriage break up because you were on the road? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I was I was the the model rock and roll guy, just debauchery. I mean, look at my my book is called Sex Drums Rock and Roll, but probably back then it might have had a little bit of sex drugs rock and roll. I mean, we were tw- I was with Mellencamp, and we went in eight years from playing in clubs to arenas. Uh, it sold out three hundred sixty, uh, you know, seats. Uh, you know, it, it, no opening act, three hour show. So uh, we were young. Audience was young. Girls were throwing their bras, underwear at us. I mean, you do the math. You're on the road for eight weeks. You come home for a week. You'll back out for eight weeks. And we did this nonstop. I mean, maybe other people Well, the difference today, as they say, is today there's cell phone cameras. Uh, so I don't think you can probably get away with a lot of that behavior. Oh, no way. No, Never th- mind the Me Too movement. Oh, t- tell me about it. I mean, I should be in jail because for just, you know, <laughs> I mean, when, when what's his name? Al Franklin you know, puts his hand on some girls. How many times I did that? But we were laughing. Everybody was laughing about it. You know, the girls would, I talked to some girls, women, of course, they're not young spring teens. They'll go like, I take pictures with my hands up in the air now. And I said, don't sue me, don't sue me. And they go like, I'll sue you if you don't touch me. That's the other side. Okay, I'm not touching that because I'm going to get caught in the uh, crossfire. But the thing is, what you're talking about is true. It's like, man, you could be a picture, and this happened before where I just, you know, you've had a couple glasses of wine, and you just are taking a picture, but your hand goes around the waist, or you're pulling in a little close, and you could look at the picture and go like, Wow. But when you were doing it, it was just like, ah, yeah, come here, you know, like, uh, like caught a, up in the moment, caught in the moment, but with no motivation or any any agenda. But the picture tells a story, as Rod Stewart once sang. Yeah. So you're from Western Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. What was it like growing up in the '50s and '60s in Western Mass? Well, you, you know Stockbridge, right? I do, but my audience doesn't. Right. Well, that I just want to let let them know that you know. Absolutely. Like Stockbridge, as you know, is a was a very unique place to grow up. Um, in Western Mass, there were all these little towns three miles apart, and I grew up in the hippest, coolest of them all, Stockbridge. Um, you know, we had a summer stock theater right down the uh, half a mile down the hill from me. So we, I mean, I was hanging out with Ann Bancroft and uh, you know Franklin Jellin when he was just making it. Whoa, and, whoa, 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 whoa. They're doing summer stock 
How do you end up hanging out with them? Well, okay, okay, that's a good question. The real reason I met him is because in that area, they had summer stock. Bill Gibson, who wrote The Miracle Worker, lived in Stockbridge, and I went to school with his son. And uh, he was friends with Arthur Penn, who was a director who had done, I think he directed Bill Gibson's play Golden Boys on Broadway. He convinced Arthur Penn to build a house on the same street in Stockbridge as, as a building. I, I know I'm jumping ahead, but didn't Arthur Penn direct Alice's Restaurant? He did Alice's Restaurant. Which is, you know, which set Stockbridge. in Stockbridge, right. Yeah. Okay, but going back to so, your story. Um, so Arthur I, Penn builds a house on your street. On the street, and, and ironically, my brother lives on that street. And we're talking You're street. identical twin, yeah, brother. identical Let's twin. evidence. Who's a doctor. And this is like a dirt road. I mean, when I say street, there might be like, Eight houses on it, you know, and it's in woods and everything and pond and, you know. And your parents do what for a living? My mom was a school teacher. My dad worked for Peter J. Schweitzer, which was the division of Kimberly Clark. There were these paper mills that ran. My, my dad was a, studied chemistry, and his specialty was in paper. And there were these mills that would run. There was a river that would right. run down Vermont, New Hampshire, into Massachusetts, into Connecticut. They had these mills. And, and, and the town over, three miles away, which is radically different than my town as far as uh, it was more like we called it them. It was like more like the greasers, the tough guys. But they had a, the mill there, and so my dad would commute three miles a day down. down Is to that, that why he moved to Western yes, Massachusetts exactly. for that job? It was either that or they were going to go to um, Minnesota. My mom went from, she's from New York, and went, <laughs> hell no. <laughs> At least Stockbridge is two and a half hours from New York. Right. But Minnesota? <laughs> so, but anyway, so I'm, I'm at my, my friend Tommy's house. On this street, the Gibsons, and I remember it was my turn. We, we, he had a house, a, a little. They had a little cottage, and we would jam and play rock and roll up there. You know, or probably smoke a little pot. I was thirteen, and we had the black lights, and it was my turn to go down to the house and sneak some beers out of the fridge. I go down there. I'm a little buzzed. I grab two or three beers, and all of a sudden, Mrs. Gibson, his mom, who's the therapist, says, "Kenny, is that you?" I'm like, "Oh." Shit, I'm busted. And I scream, put the beers back. She says, come out here and say hi to everybody. They're having a, a dinner on a porch at night. The candles and the wine's going. And there is Ann Bancroft, Mel Gibson, and Franklin Jones. Not, not Mel Gibson. No, not Mel Gibson. Wait, Mel Brooks. So, th- th- and they would come up and do summer stock just to get out of the city. That's how it all tied. And then I eventually was in a musical there. And, you know, we... My mom loved the theater because she grew up in New York, so she was always getting us tickets. And then she'd get, she knew Arthur Penn, and then we'd be backstage meeting Richard Dreyfus or whoever, Goldie Hawn, whoever was there acting. And, and, and then you mentioned this Alice's restaurant. There was this little diner in Stockbridge. I was in fifth grade. I was the little kid trying to hang out with these kind of cool got people. And there was this lady called Alice, and she had this little diner, and then she, uh, eventually hooked up with uh, all these people who'd come in there, like Arlo Guthrie and all the hippies. And and the, the famous story about Alice's Restaurant for the audience is that they eventually uh, got this uh, church in Housatonic, another little town three miles away on a river, and um, they got this church, and they lived in it like hippies. Like, you know, Woodstock was only two hours away. So they all had, they had this famous Thanksgiving, and they they had all this garbage, and they didn't know what to do with it, so they put it in uh, 
the VW bus, a hippie VW bus, right? They load it up, they go to the dump, but the dump is 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 closed. So they know what to do with it. They're all stoned and high, and they just dump it on the side of the road down an embankment. Now, my best friend's dad was the chief of police, <laughs> Officer Obi. You remember him? Yeah, of course. Yeah, that was my best friend. <laughs> he was this big, menacing cop, and— um, he finds out that this is garbage. Okay, let's be clear since we're getting the real story. Story from the song is they just dumped on a day you couldn't dump. Did they put it in the dump or did they put it on the side of the road, not in the dump? Not in the dump because they couldn't get in. Ah. And this was like an embankment, like the road, and then it, there's the guardrail, and then it goes, drops down on a grassy hill. They threw it there, but they, they had all, you know, their, their names were on letters. They had pick. I mean, it was the evidence was there. Right. In the movie, now I don't know if this is true, in the movie they say they have to submit the evidence to the judge and he's blind. That had to be a joke. I would think so, but Come I on. can't speak to that. Yeah. So anyway, and so they didn't, they just were told to clean up your mess and they ended up bringing it all the way down to the barge in New York City. For whatever reason, that's where they dumped it. And so Arlo Guthrie wrote a song called Alice's Restaurant, which became, it was a funny story with great lyrics. Arlo lives in that area. Arthur Penn thought it was time to make a movie uh, out of this whole scene. And that, I was, I could have been in it, but I was like, nah, that's not cool. Okay, before the song comes out, because I'm growing up like, you know, hour and 20 away, whatever. Mm. I know about it from the song, but did you know about it when it happened? Oh, yeah. It was a big deal. Oh, yeah, it was a big deal. They were my, I kind of looked up to all those guys. They were all older than me, and and I thought they were the coolest. And, you know, I was I wanted to be part of their gang, but I couldn't drive. All I had was a bicycle. And, you know, I, you know so I was kind of, I, I always go to the restaurant because it was like just a mile from my house. I just get on my bike. And, oh, really? Or walk down, yeah. And was the food any good? Yeah, it was killer. <laughs> it was like, a, it was like a, a real diner, a cool diner, and Alice was a great cook. And she eventually created Alice's at Avalok, which was right above uh, Tangwood in Lennox on a hill. She took over the whole place, became the coolest restaurant, and, you know. Okay, so you're growing up. Your mother's into theater. Did she make you take piano lessons? Oh, right? yeah. What age did you start piano lessons? Well, it started when, I can't even remember, she put each one of us uh, on her lap and she'd teach us a song. And each uh, each kid, it was, I had my brother, twin brother, and my sister, who's four years younger. We learned these songs and then, you know, she was of the, uh, back then everybody, you know, if you're going to be musical or be a well-rounded kid, you study piano. But... One day, I'm, it's like 1964, and I'm outside playing with my brother, and my mom screams at us to come in the house. I thought I was in trouble, but I wasn't on our black and white RCA TV set with the rabbit ears and the tinfoil, you know, it was the Ed Sullivan show. Guess who? And I'm sitting there looking at these four guys with long hair. I could not, I was, I was bouncing off the walls. I, was, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was, I said, Mom, who are these guys? She said, well, those are the Beatles. And I was enamored by Ringo Starr's drum kit and the whole thing. And I, I literally naively asked my mom to call them up and get me in the band. <laughs> I had no other, I, I, I didn't know any other way to do it. We'll pause briefly and get right back to Kenny Aronoff, recorded live at the TuneIn Studios in Venice, California. This podcast is brought to you by TuneIn which brings together all the live sports, music, news, and podcasts you love. Original, live, and on-demand audio all in one place. Go to TuneIn.com slash sets to download and listen. Now, more with legendary drummer Kenny Aronoff. 
Were you a big fan of music? Were you listening on oh, the yeah. transistor? Everything. Uh, the, the big thing was my parents always had jazz and classical music on the turntable. You know, and they and show tunes, show tunes, big because they from New York. You know, it was like uh, you just show tunes. You know, and uh, musicals, and you know, West Side Story, and this story, and that story, and you name it. It was there, and they would take us. I don't know if you knew this, but in Lennox, they had obviously the Boston Symphony Orchestra, but they had this thing called Music Inn, and in the sixties, they had a huge jazz. Uh, program up there, and I, and I would go up there. Uh, it was somebody thought of, you know, let's let's create a program out of the city, get out of New York in the summer, and go to the Berkshires. And they created a whole thing. And I'd see Dave Brubeck every summer, Ray Charles. I'd see Charles Mingus. Uh, I wish I'd seen Coltrane and Ella Fitzgerald. All, all these great jazzers. And so I was right there, man. Okay, so you see the Beatles. How do you get a drum kit? Well, I couldn't. I couldn't afford it. So my mom goes down to New York Manny's. Of course. Right, 48th Street, gets a, 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 a snare drum. How did she know to go to Manny's? I, somebody told her. Okay. Somebody, because they were in that whole circle of music, and, and they knew a lot of New Yorkers. This guy, Dick Katz, was a jazz pianist who actually lived in our house one summer, and he was studying at the music inn. He was doing taking workshops and giving workshops. He says, Manny's is the place to go. Because there was not really a drum shop. There definitely wasn't. Maybe there was a music store in our area, but not, not, not in Stockbridge, that's for sure. It was like three towns over. So we're down there. My mom goes, listen, my kid wants to play. She says, Mrs. Aronoff, here's a snare drum. You buy this snare drum. If he doesn't like it in three months or six months, you bring it back and we'll give you your money back. Who does that? I don't remember. I just remember going to Manny's, you know, other than seeing the young uh, Gene Cornish there yeah. and then other famous musicians, as a young kid, they would buy and sell stuff so fast. You'd save your money for a guitar. And they go, what do you want, Fender Stratocaster? Okay, bring it down. Yeah. It's just How like, about this? <laughs> right. How much money you got in your wallet? That's what they said to me. <laughs> right, right, How exactly. much money you got in your wallet? I'm like, what? They would they would push you in and out, right? Exactly. Dude, it was like ruthless. It's like I was nervous when I get in there. Absolutely. And, and like, did they do the right thing? You know? I don't. Okay, so you got the snare drum. And then I got a cymbal, and I stood up and played. Okay, did you take lessons? Well, you know that in high, no, not high school, in uh, junior high, even less than that, like up to grade six, there was that music teacher that taught everybody every, Exactly. Or there used to be. That's the one of the things. The band instructor. Exactly. That's what they called him, right? Right. He was a band instructor, and he kind of taught me how to hold the sticks, and he needed, he saw that I was in the drums, and it was boring, man. I had to play on a pad and learn to read, and it was like not fun. It was not the Beatles. As far from the Beatles as you could be, so I would. But 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 that was the beginning of me, you know, trying to read, trying to. To me, it was like, and 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 move forward in high school and junior high. I had nothing to do with the marching band. I had nothing to. That wasn't cool. I was playing in clubs, playing Hendrix and the Stones and Beatles and stuff like that. Why would I want to listen to a squeaky clarinet? Okay, so you have your snare drum and a cymbal. Yeah. At what point do you form a band? Well, right away. It was called the Alley Cats, and uh, actually I actually have a picture not on me, but and and I'd stand up and play, and then for Christmas or Hanukkah, whatever. Okay, but, but we get a did, You had the band. Did the band play any gigs? Yeah, the first gig. There was a thing called <laughs> the Grange Meeting, and what the Grange Meeting was, all the elderlies of Stockbridge would meet once a month at the town hall, and they discuss how to keep the 
the the the looks and the vibe uh, of Stockbridge, you know, preserved. You know, to say you know they go over things, and the one and the the mother of the piano player, she wasn't too elderly, but she was part of the Grange meeting. Said, well, "How would you like to have my boy and her and and his band come down and entertain us?" We get a call and we think we're playing Madison Square Garden. Parents, you know, throw my snare and cymbal in the in the, the the station wagon. We go down, we set up, and to me, it was like I was on the Ed Sullivan show. I mean, it was like, and we're playing, you know, all these Beatles songs and a couple of Beach Boys songs. We get done. It was maybe five songs, and everyone's up dancing and all going like, "That's what they call a rock band." Like it was new. That's that's a, that's what the Beatles do, you know. It was this new thing, <laughs> and we get done, and I'm shutting my eyes and picturing the whole thing. I'm in complete love and flipped out about this. And they say, "Do you know any more songs?" And we said, "No." So we played the same five again. <laughs> wow, wow! I thought the story was going to go opposite. You were playing for the uh, town elders, and they were going to say, "Springtime for Hitler," and get off the stage. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, okay. So, yeah, so that was the beginning. So how, when do you get a full drum kit? Well, the next uh, Christmas, Hanukkah time, you know, I got a bass drum. Next birthday, I got a floor tom. Next, you know, I save up my money for the rack tom. I just built, put it together slowly, but sure, and I still have that kit. And the funny story is that snare drum, um, when I got older, it was a kind of, it, it only had six lugs. And when you only have six lugs, the standard is ten, maybe eight. It was six because the less lugs, the more ringy the drummers. For a jazz drummer, that's you don't play loud and you, you want lots of tone and dynamics and you control everything with your hands. So that was interesting. I had a six lug and I realized it wasn't a really good rock and roll drum. So I gave it to some kid for a couple of bags of homegrown pot. <laughs> now check this out. When I became famous, that kid, Carl Alanda, uh, emails me and goes, Kenny, I was about to sell your snare drum on eBay. Would you like to buy it back? So I call up a guy who knows about buying and selling old drums. He says, it's probably worth four to $600. So I, I bought the thing back for $400. Wow. How many drum sets do you have? Well, I've, had, I've been up as much as 14, but I'm starting to get rid of them because it just takes up too much space. I'm not going to use them. And yeah. your original drums were Ludwig's? Ludwig, yeah. Just like Ringo. Yep. Tweeted the other day that it's 55 years since he got his first Ludwig kit. And, oh. and what do you play now? Tom, I've been with Tom for 35 years. What's the real difference between drums? Definitely uh, the manufacturing. If, 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 first of all, if, if any company can't make a good-sounding drum now, they shouldn't be in the business. It's not rocket science anymore. There's a, a formula. But, you know... Um, the thing I liked about Tama was they came on strong. It was a family-run business and uh, out of Japan, and their hardware was extraordinary. They're a very creative and innovative company, and they, they, they're they a little uncommon. And they and I was blown away, and then it was Billy Cobham from Mahavishnu Orchestra, Alvin Jones, uh, uh, you know, all these different cool drummers, Liberty DeVito from Billy Joel, uh, Different people. I, I really dug their roster, and then I, I I played their equipment, and it was unbelievable. It just sounded great. Now, almost every company has a great sounding drum, but the consistency I, they've never let me down at any level of drum. Whether it's for the beginner, the quality is extremely high, uh, and they believe you know you don't you ne- you don't be cheap at any level on anything. And that's how you get somebody to fall in love with your product. And as they graduate up to the expensive kits, you know, they're committed. And, uh, 
Yeah, I could leave uh, Tom. I, I remember a lot of companies tried to grab me when I was big, like Pearl. They, I was in Nashville recording a lot down there. And the Pearl, which headquarters is there, they brought me in. They wanted, they were trying to offer me to switch. And I said, look, unless you offer me something that Tom is already giving me, I, I can't, I'm not going to leave a company for a lateral move. It's got to be something, what is there? I mean, more advertising? No, I get. I'm in. I'm, I get plenty of advertising. More drum clinics, maybe guaranteed. Uh, you know, but I'm on tour all the time. You know, it didn't make sense. Okay, um, I'm just thinking. I had a question about the drums that fascinated me, but it, it eludes me right at this very second. But ultimately, you get hooked in with Tanglewood, and you go to Boston yeah. to be taught drums. Why don't you tell my audience about that? Well, when I was a kid, there was no school of rock. And in our family, everybody went to college. That was a given. Um, you know, post-World War II, you know, my dad, my grandparents came from Russia. Education, education. My dad gets an education. But before he can even really get started, he's flying bombers over uh, Berlin, bombing the shit out of uh, uh, Hitler at last 15. And when, and when did you find out about that? Pretty young because he had these books where he was the he was the uh, navigator and bombardier. I had pictures of like pictures that was scrapbooks of you know bombays opening and bombs going down. And would he talk about it? Not really, you know. But but I I still I have a suit his uh, his uh, whatever he was um, you know I have the the suit he wore um, and uh, my my brother has all his. All those pictures, and I, you know, and my brother smartly. There were ten people in these these big, huge bombers, and they started the, the whole Spielberg type of thing. They would get together every year. They still probably are, but you know, there's only a few left. And there were six people in that plane of his. That's out of the ten that were still alive when they started doing this. Then there was four, and the last three, ironically, was. Pilot, co-pilot, and navigator, my dad. Isn't that weird? All the guys up front. Right. Last week. So my brother says, I got to get this on film. So he goes and he does 17 CDs or DVDs worth of filming, interviewing these guys. And my brother's a psychoanalyst, so he came at it from an interesting st uh, standpoint. The night they get down there, the next day is the, the, like the, the, two, the weekend's uh, convention. My dad almost dies. He has goes into spasms. And they have to bring him to the hospital, and eventually they put a, a a pacemaker in and then a defibrillator. I think he may have had the pacemaker, but he needed a defibrillator. That would have—he he lived, but he could have died. And my dad said, no, 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 film film the, these guys, and we'll film me later. And that's what he did. So— um, um, amazing. I mean, the stories, I mean, they, from their perspective, almost dying. My dad said he saw more planes go down— you, you you just get in formation. There'd be nine of them, I think. You take off, uh, and these planes were put together with spit and glue. They they were they was the, the first. That was the beginning of the Air Force, and they but they had to do it to 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 beat the crap out of Hitler because he was taking over the whole world. So um, they they get in formation, and and the first plane would send off a like a a colored flare of some sort so you knew you had to be with the squadron of yellow and they get all these nine planes up and they get in formation and my brother asked the, the pilot you know who might maybe was 20 at that time flying so how did you i mean you you know the flak was coming up from below 
and they were blowing out planes out of the sky. You see your buddy's plane go. You see it was just absolute hell. And explosions and planes were getting beat up. And he says, how did you stay focused? He says, well, my job was to, I just looked at the coordinates I had to go. I just ignored life or death. This is where I have to go. That's my job. Do it. And they survived a couple times. They almost had, they were running out of gas. And they, or one time, the bombardier, the bomb bay opened up and all my dad's navigation plans went flying <laughs> out the bottom. You know how he navigated them? The stars. Wow. The stars. He had to learn about the stars in case that happened. Thank God they were high enough that you could see. And then they had, to, you know, he's using protractors and slide rules. I remember high school chemistry. I gave up science after the slide roll. <laughs> the slide roll. <laughs> it's like, I never got God, it. You know, they have calculators yeah. now. So anyway, but you end up going to Boston for music okay. lessons. So what happened was, yeah, in high school, I, I saw, oh, my buddy Tommy Gibson was getting better on drums. Uh, you know, Bill Gibson's son. And I was like, God, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm studying with the percussions from the Boston Symphony Orchestra, Art Press. Well, well, I want to do that. So I go down he, in the summer, you know, they're there, but in the... Winter, he's in Boston. So I take a bus, Greyhound bus, and I go down there. And I go to Arthur's house. He says, what's your name? Very menacing, slightly whiplash style, you know, like, kid, what's your name? I said, Kenny. Kenny what? Kenny Arnoff. He says, what have you prepared for me today? I'm like, what? Tommy didn't tell me about preparing anything. He says, do you play marimba? I says, no. Well, have you prepared a timpani piece for me? I said, I've never played timpani. And I'm just getting smaller and smaller. Finally, says, what do you play? I said, I play drum set. He says, well, let's come down stairs, and I'll have you play some drum set. So he puts on spinning wheels by blood, sweat, and tears. In 30 seconds, he pulls me off the chair, and he points to a rubber practice pad. That was the definitive moment where it's like, I don't need this. But something told me inside me that I do. And that was the beginning of some severe discipline. And, you know, in the winter I didn't practice a lot because it was a lesson every month. But in the summer, when he was going to be there every week and he's yelling at you and screaming at you, I started to practice. So then when it was time to go to college, there was no school of rock. So I started auditioning, you know, Western Mass, you know, colleges so I could be near home. Then I get into University of Massachusetts, and I had I prepared something on uh, vibes because my dad got a, a set of vibes for me secondhand at Carol's Music Shop in New York for like three hundred bucks. So I had vibes, and uh, I, I, my Tommy had timpani. I practiced on timpani, and I p- barely got into UMass. And that's the fear of 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 failure. The day I graduated high school. I started practicing eight hours a day, seven days a week because I was terrified to fail. And I was terrified I was going to be way behind, and I was. I got to school. All these kids that were in marching band and symphony orchestra, their reading skills were better. They could follow conductors. I was a rocker, you know. And so I was terrified and the fear of failure. I would practice till they throw me out of the building every night. And it gets better because... I'm st- I'm starting to get better, you know, I'm, and the teacher, the reason why he... Let me ask you, would this have all happened if your parents had not insisted you go to college? Jeez, I don't know what I would have done. Probably I would have gone anyway because everybody was doing that. Everybody was going to college. So, did, but it wasn't an issue of saying, fuck this, I just want to play in a rock band. No, because I did, had no business model. Living in Stockbridge, we didn't have, there was nobody who had done it. If I lived in New York, maybe. 
I've right. done it. But there was no business model. I was like, uh, how do you do this? I realized that my mom wasn't going to get in t- touch with the Beatles. You know, I realized I was, I had no business Okay, model. and when you're going to college, with what goal? Just to get a degree or to then play in a rock band or whatever? Uh, good, good, good question. Uh, my brain was saying you get into a symphony orchestra. My heart was uh, saying in a rock band. And I always was playing in rock bands, jazz bands, R&B bands, any band. Any Music was fun. I just did whatever. Anybody, I wasn't selective. I just, as long as I was playing, I was having a blast. You know, how did you schlep the drums around all the time? Uh, not an issue. I don't care. Somebody had a car. I didn't have a car. Till I got out of college, somebody always had a car or something. We pick them up. They wanted me. They get me in the drums. And okay, so you're practicing eight hours a day at UMass. Eight hours a day at home. Then I get into UMass, and then you got full load of academics and music. And so I practiced the wee hours a night. And there was this hot cellist, as hot as a cellist can be in orchestra. And uh, she, I heard her say, "I'm going to Aspen this summer." She was a junior. I went, what's Aspen? So, oh, they have a Juilliard has this incredible program at Aspen. So I find out, I get the papers and I audition, and uh, um, I don't hear from them. And it's the end of the the the, 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 the uh, school year, and I I'm gonna go home. I got my dad's station wagon. I got all my stuff, and I'm I got I'm gonna study with Arthur Press again. And I got our Almond Brothers type band, and uh, and so I'm head about two miles out of town. I go, oh shit, I forgot my mail. I go back and went, I said, it looks like I got a check. And I open it up. It's you are accepted to Aspen. I think I was an alternate because it's two weeks before. So I go there. I am the absolute. By far, worst percussionist there. These guys were playing marimba and timpani in the Juilliard Youth Orchestra when they were in diapers, and they were a monster. Now, the teacher there was this incredible, brilliant man, George Gaber, who taught at Indiana University, number one school of music in the country. And um, I'm blown away by this guy's head, you know, his whole thought process, his whole... uh, It was way deeper than just playing percussion. So I said, I want to... I want to go to uh, Indiana University and study with you. He says, ah, come back in January and audition. I went, no. I want to audition now. Demanded an audition. He had to find a faculty from four different departments from Indiana. That's the rule. You have to audition for four different faculty head department heads to get in so that it's not one-sided. And they happened to be up there. They were all part of the ass. A lot of Indiana professors would teach there. I get in. And for four years, I busted my ass at... Okay, so how many years had you done at UMass? One year at UMass, four at Indiana. And every spring, I would audition to get into Tangwood, which is in my backyard, which is the number one student orchestra in the country, and it's run by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And the cool thing about being in that orchestra, you get conducted by all the conductors that conduct the Boston Symphony Orchestra. So I auditioned one year for Vic Firth, my, uh, you know, the timpanist, and uh, I, I strike out miserably. Next year, I come back. Did you have stage fright or you weren't good enough? Both. I was nervous, man. And, what did you end up doing that summer? I uh, studied with Arthur Press and had a, my own fusion band. I never, ever stopped practicing. Massively practicing. And um, and then... Well, what is it when a drummer practices, what do they do? Well, on marimba, there were scales and there were etudes and melodies and, and arpeggios and technical things. Then I'd do that for like maybe two hours or, or two or three hours and then move over to timpani, the same thing. Technical exercises, then you're learning uh, uh, etudes and, and melodies that have been written specifically for the timpani, uh, tuning, and then you play along with symphony, uh, you know, uh, 
symphonies, you know, by, you know, Beethoven or... I remember one of the questions that eluded me. When they say tuning drums, how do you tune a drum? Well, the, the whole concept is that the shell on top and bottom has, it, where the shell ends is a bearing edge, and you can sharpen those edges at a 45 or 60-degree angle. The sharper, the more aggressive the drum sounds. The rounder the edge, the more you have a, t- a bigger tuning range, and it's a little bit warmer sounding. Then you have a head that you put on, and that's a whole variable. Then there's this um, steel or metal a hoop that goes over the head that's just a little bit wider than the shell. And in that hoop, there might be eight, six on a tom, it'd be six lugs, snared them, eight or ten lugs, and lugs are just like screws. And on the shell are these little casings that will receive the screws. And you're basically, the concept, you're trying to bring this hoop down on top of the head, tighten that head down on that bearing edge evenly. And when you do it evenly, you get you're shooting to get one tone, one bing, like that. You want bong. So what I do is I tune the bottom head first, finger tight, get the lugs down. Then I start turning equal turns, like maybe with a tuning key, a drum key, half turn, half turn all the way around, half turn, half turn all the way around. Listen to feel how the tightness. Maybe do a quarter turn, quarter turn. Stop there. Then I put the top head on and I start tuning it up and I'm using my ears. I've got this technical ability, but I'm really using my ears now at this point. When does it start to sound good? I'd like to have both the top and bottom head the same pitch because then the drum sounds like one note. And each drum does have a sweet spot where it sounds the best. Let's say Thomas shipped you a drum kit. Mm -hmm. How long would it take you to get it to where you're satisfied? Oh, I could probably get it pretty good in 30 minutes, but I'm like a speed demon on it. Uh, you know, when I do these drum seminars uh, and they have a new kit, I tell them ahead of time, get the heads on, get it tuned as good as you can, and I come in and tweak it real fast. I'll check the bottom head first immediately and go like, wait a minute, this is too tight. Bring it down. Then I start bringing the top head up or down until it starts to sound good. Then I keep tweaking. Sometimes just one. Now, if you hear a weird, like, a weird vibration, I'll feel around, and there might be a, a head could have a flaw, and it's a little not tight on the on the bearing edge, and so I have to tune that particular lug tighter. Okay, and when you go into the studio, usually in the old days, you go to a big studio, the first thing they're doing is getting the drum sound and tuning right. the drums. Are they, when they talk about tuning the drums, they talk about the same thing you're talking about? Yeah, yeah you just want to get the... Um, you want to get the drums to sound the best that those drums can sound. And if, I, if, I, if you're doing like my, my well-known snare sound from the 80s with Mellencamp had a ring to it. We would tune after every take. We, we had a recording of that pitch, and we'd retune the snare drum to get it back to that pitch so that it was consistent. So if you were splicing between takes, you had the same tuning. Then, then, but, but a lot of times I'd go into sessions, and people were like, wow, what's that ring? And I'm like, that's Kenny Aronoff. <laughs> <laughs> and they go, well, can you put a little tape on it? I'm like, I don't care. I'm sure, whatever. And I, I would go, at one point I was showing up in L.A. with 100 snare drums. Just because I thought more was more. Now I, I have my own signature series. I only need about really six snare drums. I got it covered. 
You're listening to my conversation with legendary drummer Kenny Aronoff, recorded live at the TuneIn Studios in Venice, California. Hope you're enjoying this episode of the Bob Left Sets podcast. If you want to see photos and videos of Kenny Aronoff in the TuneIn Studios, go to at TuneIn on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Now, more of legendary drummer Kenny Aronoff on the Bob Left Sets podcast. Okay, occasionally you're in the studio and the producers say, oh, I want to rent this specific drum kit. Yeah. Now, you, sure. your level with it, does that ever happen? Rarely. So occasionally, though, like they want, or you go in the studio and this is where the producer always works and the drums, is, this, is, this is what we like to use, they're all mic'd up, and blah, 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 blah. But if they really want Kenny Aronoff complete, then you have me bring my drums. Dude, Fogarty, 1980, 1995, I get called to do Fogarty record. I'll, bet, I'll go right ahead and say this. He spent five years practicing all instruments to get ready to make a record. You know, he, he, he had quit the music business. He was disillusioned by failure after, or just all the, sh the stuff that went down between him and the management. And he, it seemed like everything was not a good thing with music. So he let it go. His wife convinced him to get back in. He spends five years doing it. I get called in the fifth year of making Blue Moon Swamp. I didn't know this until way later. And so that's 10 years. I'm the 30th drummer, last guy. And so... I say, okay, what, when do you want my cartage coming to bring my drums? And they went, oh, no, no. Bob Fogarty, his brother, says, you don't need to bring your drums. It's all there. John had learned. He he'd learned how to tune drums. He knew that he wanted a Thomas 22 by 18 maple drum kit, front head off. He had learned how to take a piano packing blanket, certain way of folding it, sticking it in just in the right place, a certain beater, Remo Fiberskin 3 bass drum head, which he would tune. He liked my favorite snare drum, which is a Ludwig Superphonic 400 with a coated ambassador. He would tune it. He had it down to a science. Half turn, half turn, third turn, turn, a quarter turn, and then take mole skin and tune it to an F sharp. He was tuning my drums. <laughs> and, were, and were you satisfied? Yeah, well... You know me. I, the whole, a lot of my success is serve the boss, serve the team, serve whatever. But here's the, the quirky thing, which is a side story. You know, I got pretty pretty good at my craft of recording. So <laughs> we learned this song, and it's me and it's Bob Glob, a bass player, and John. And I'm thinking we're all getting this together because we go out and we play the song two takes, and then go back and listen to it. And John's make a few comments, two takes, go back and listen to it. After six takes, I went. Pretty damn good. He says, nah, let's keep going. So we do it for three and a half hours and then took lunch break and we did the next song. I'm like, this is awesome. And um, John says to me after the first day, he says, you know, I really enjoy working with you, man. You're the drummer I've been looking for my whole life. Would you mind coming back tomorrow? I went, absolutely. You, John <laughs> Fogarty, Creedence Clearwater. So I go, okay, what songs are we doing today? And they went, um, same two songs. <laughs> I'm like, what? So then I go... I'm like, what am I doing wrong? You know, so I'm trying real hard. This is what John liked. I didn't know that. I was a f like, and then he invites me back next day. It's Wednesday. And I says, all right, what are we doing today? Same two songs. Thursday. I'm like, ready to lose my mind. I'm like, you're not, we're not doing the same two songs. He says, yeah, we are. And Friday, then I realized what was happening. Friday, same two songs. And he invites me to come back the next week. And it was a new set of songs. <laughs> but he, 
through those five years, he was such a perfectionist. He was trying to find his voice and his sound and, and the snaredom thing. And this is for the listeners that we had the same issue with Mellencamp. It was like we were trying to get this unique drum sound, and you get that, and then you get this cool guitar sound, and you put it together, it didn't work. It's like if you put red, the color red on a canvas, and then you put red on red, it starts to look brown. You so we had to find frequency where the guitars would not overlap too much on the snare sound. And that was a challenge. And that's why I always bought so many snare drums. And, you know, I would work with the engineers and I would listen and go, oh, yeah, the snare is the same pitch. Let me tune it down a little bit. And, you know, in 2005, when the whole, you said, yeah, we would build, you'd build everything around the drum sound. You had to get, there was no Pro Tools, so you had to get complete takes. You didn't want to be the guy to mess up a take and then they'd have to split tape. And you can only get three takes on one reel. Now if you're getting into two reels and three reels, that's $500 a reel. Plus, you're going like, okay, wait, let's listen to take number nine. That's on reel three. Let's go back and listen to take number two on reel one. I mean, you're really messing up. The drummer has to play... Perfect in time, right sounds, right fills, right groove, right everything. So they can build everything off of that. And I still try to record like that, even with Pro Tools. Uh, what about a click track? Click track, no problem. I love it. Use it, not use it, start it, shut it off. I, it, the, the click track is a, is a good mechanism. Why don't you it, explain for those people who don't know what a click track well, is? Well, click track is like a metronome. It's got a, like a, if the tempo is 120, gut, gut, gut. I personally like a cowbell in my head because I'm so deaf. <laughs> so oh, yeah. I, Has your hearing suffered? Oh, big time. Yeah. You wear the hearing aids? Um, I try not to. <laughs> well, around my wife, I do. I wouldn't admit that to anybody, but I'm admitting it on your show. I have met home because her voice is very, very high, and she's English, and she speaks quiet. And to preserve my relationship, I because <laughs> she got sick of me saying what? Okay, so 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 the click track is the, the the greatest thing about a click track is if you go if you are editing between takes, you're the same tempo, right? You can and if you click track goes all the way through the song, easy to make edits. And nowadays we use Pro Tools, which are some form digital format, which means you can go between a, a thousand takes in a split second and grab something from here and grab something from there. If you're recording with a click track. The edit is easy because that takes that out of that factor out of the equation. What I find though that the challenge for me is to make is to not allow the the track to sound stiff or boring. Sometimes songs should speed up. You know, could you imagine the who on a click track? It wouldn't sound like the who. Be horrible. And so. Um, what I will do is I will manipulate the click. I'll kind of push ahead and, of course, come back in the verses. And, it, and so I manipulate the click. I kind of get a little on top, pull back. Or I, and sometimes I've done sessions where I say just shut it off after a certain point and let it breathe. Okay, to what degree are there still sessions? The what? Still sessions that you're called for or anybody's oh, yeah, called okay. for. So I just did Brian Wilson, and okay. that was in a big studio because there's a budget. Um I did something with Sammy Hagar and Run DMC, and I have my own studio now. I didn't want to have my own studio. It was a big investment. But when I saw the budgets change and uh, this project coordinator, Sherry Selfcliffe, called me up, and I didn't even have an apartment in LA, LA yet. I was still living in Indiana. People would fly me all over the world just for one song because there was a budget. People were selling records. There was money to be made. And like any business, you make money. You have money to reinvest in the business. And we did that. So 
all of a sudden, Sherry Sutcliffe, I'll never forget, I was at the Sunset Marquee. Well, you know, let me explain. The Rock and Roll Hotel. Rock and Roll Hotel, debauchery. I was one of the guys there. <laughs> and, uh, <coughs> and uh, you know, they would fly me. I'd live in Indiana. They'd pay for my my everything, every expense, my parking. I'd be in first class. I'd land. I'd get a cool Rock and Roll Mustang or some car, stay at an expensive, cool hotel like Sunset Marquee where there I'm hanging out with you two and the Stones. And it was a great place to be because you were networking. And, um... And I, I could be there for two weeks, three weeks, a month. And, you know, that hotel is expensive. Uh, and then there would be a per diem, and I would get paid really, really well. Uh, Sherry calls up and says, Kenny, if you happen to be in town, I got this session. Went, what do you mean if I happen to be in town? I said, are the budgets changing? She said, yeah. What year would you put this out? I'd say that in the mid-2000s. Okay. And uh, I went, wow. In one month, I got an apartment. So now all of a sudden I had a, an expense of two and a half to three grand I didn't have. But for me it was like, take my money, but don't take that career of mine. Right. And eventually I bought a house here. And then the next step was I eventually got a studio, two rooms, a control room, and spent, you know, hundreds of thousands on great equipment to sound like Kenny Arnold, great mics, drum sets, always mic. And I've done Avril Lavigne in there. I've done, she wasn't there, but they send me the tracks. People can send me tracks from all the world. Sammy Hagar this last year wrote this cool song, and he said, hey, Kenny, I want you to play drums on this, and it's for me and run DMC or DMC. And um, I said, well, do you want me to do it in my studio or do you want to do it in a, you know, a big room? And he says, well, send me what your studio sounds like. So I sent him some stuff and went, whoa, man, it sounds great. It's just doing your room. So that I don't charge for my room. I just charge for me. So... Yeah, it works, so... You know, How much do you charge? <laughs> I guess should I say? Well, I, you know, I can ask. You can, you can decide whether to answer. Uh, let's just put it this way. It's, it's not that expensive, but some people might think so if they don't have a record deal. Uh, uh, the, the fee is for one song is for the studio, me, and the engineer. I pay the engineer. And then if two or more, it drops down, and three or more, it drops down. It's very reasonable. But I'll get these emails from around the world, and, and, and I'll say what the fee is, and I never hear from anybody. Well, it happens to all of us. But, the, but the, well, yeah. you, if someone is willing to pay and you have the time, you're willing to work for any, with anybody? Yeah, I'll work for anybody. And what I do is I'll, I'm very, very detailed chart writer. I write every note out. And the whole purpose of that is when I get in the studio, I'm not wasting anybody's time, including me. It's like being an actor, like, let's go, and let's do this scene, and while I'm still hot, let's do it again, and let's do it again. And I like my engineer to move fast, and I get three takes. Usually the first take is just to make sure I wrote everything out right, then it's bam, bam, bam. And there are performances, and you can hear it and feel it. Okay, let's go back to Tanglewood. So the first year, you don't make it. What happens the next three years? Second year, I don't make it. Third year, I don't make it. And it's almost like strike three, you're out. And fourth year, I get in. Seven percussionists in the whole world. I get in, I work with Leonard Bernstein, Sejuzawa, you know, another American composer, a conductor, uh, Aaron Copeland, Arthur Fiedler. And this is the elite orchestra. And I mean, I got great pictures of me and Bernstein. I just did that thing at Skirball. Um, I got asked to perform with David Pack, who worked with Bernstein, and hung David out. Pack from Ambrosia. Yeah, and he had apparently was involved with that that score or work doing something with Leonard's Mass, and uh, when he was young, and they became friends. And Alec Bernstein, uh, uh, Leonard's uh, son, I hadn't seen since I was a kid, 
And it was a great reunion. And uh, anyway, uh, Leonard was cool, man, because later on when he, uh, you know, he, I, I'd won a concerto competition. Now, this, this whoa, whoa, is, whoa, 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 whoa. This was at Tanglewood that you won the concerto no, competition? No, at uh, Indiana University. Well, before, let's finish off Tanglewood. So you're there finally the fourth year. Yeah. And other than having a great experience, do you learn anything? Oh, my God. Yeah, that was, that was elite. Dude, okay, this great story. First day, I'm nervous. You know, this is the best orchestra. I'm nervous. I'm still, I mean, I've gotten way, way good, but uh, it's, you know, I'm with the elite from all over the world. And Seiji Ozawa, one of the greatest conductors ever, who's a conductor for Boston Symphony Orchestra of San Francisco, uh, who Leonard Bernstein had found in Japan and brought him to Tanguin when he was a kid. Zawa had an impeccable memory. He walks in, and conductors, the, the, the story here is to show different styles of conducting. He comes in and says to the orchestra, looks at them, he's trying to gain power and control. He says, what, what are we playing, what are we, perf- what are we doing today? We had all the scores memorized. And they say, okay, we're doing this. He says, let's play this. It was a Ravel thing. And his conducting style was unbelievable. Wow. The form, the flow, and in about 30 seconds, he stops and he rips through all the different sections. You're out of tune. You're behind the beat you're, to, to establish power. And at the end of the rehearsal, I'm picking up a lot of percussion stuff on the floor in the back. Everybody scattered. It was just me. And then I hear some talking. I look up. I'm still on the ground. I look up past my music stand. There's Leonard Bernstein with Ozawa. And Ozawa's going... I don't understand. This orchestra is supposed to be the best, and they're not performing. And here's the difference. Leonard put his hand on his shoulder and said, Seji, show some love and compassion, and they will play for you because they are the best. Wow. Wow. And then all the, you know, in the percussion world, timpani is like the the, the cool spot. You know, you're by yourself kind of. There's all the percussion and it's timpani. And timpani is a very, very dynamic instrument. It, it supports, you know, basses when they're doing a long, like, you know, or cellos. And on the timpani, you're going, you're trying to make this sustained roll that supports it. Or you play real loud and you're, you're tuning. Every drum is tunable and you have to be in tune. Because if you're out of tune... Like, even by a little bit. So it's a, a virtuosic instrument, and they're one of the highest paid people in the orchestra. Anyway, the first week, I'm playing percussion. Second week, I'm playing percussion. Third week, finally, I'm the only guy who hasn't played timpani. Sibelius Fifth Symphony, this big, killer timpani part with Bernstein conducting. And? Oh, it was killer. So, so, you, yeah, so, so you didn't it, choke. I you didn't were good. choke. I crushed it. And... The piece is so beautiful that I literally was having to pinch myself while I was on stage uh, to not well up with tears because it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. So this concerto thing I was telling you about. Okay, so now we're back at Indiana University. Yeah. When I auditioned at UMass, I'd never played a marimba before. I had this vibraphone, which is a metal uh, mallard instrument, and the marimbas, the bars are bigger, and it's a longer instrument. So... it, it, the you know you're you're gonna miss notes if you're used to the spacing of one instrument you miss you have to adapt so I, I was the story is at 18 I played marimba for the first time it just about when I was about to turn 23 I had worked so hard I had won a concerto competition playing a violin 
concerto that I saw Itzhak Perlman play in, a, in his performance at Indiana University with orchestra as his encore, and I decided at that moment that would be my marimba piece on my senior recital. And your senior recital at Indiana University, you had to play timpani, multiple percussion, a mallet piece, uh, and then you could decide uh, if you want to play drum set or uh, most people, if you were a classical major, would just pick a snare drum etude. But it was all very classical and virtuosic. I picked this piece. I practicing in my senior year uh, three hours a day, 365 days a year. Just for that one piece in my recital, my teacher was blown away by my performance ability. And what I had done, I'd memorized all the phrasings of Itzhak Perlman. You know, like a violin. And I'd done such a great job that he said, I want you to enter this uh, concerto competition. If you win, you get to perform in the opera hall, which is the size of the New York Met at uh, Indiana University uh, with a full orchestra, 60-piece orchestra. I auditioned and I win. And so I, the first time, when I, the night I was supposed to do it, uh, I was so nervous, and I'm walking to this huge uh, opera hall, and everyone's running out of the building. It looked like the Poseidon adventure. <laughs> you know? What had happened is a grid went out at Indiana University, and the power was gone, so I couldn't perform. A blessing, because I was nervous. I was going to mess up. So the conductor said to the orchestra, look it, we don't have to reschedule, but... I feel bad for Kenny. He didn't get to do it. They all went, let's do it. We're going to do it. So when I did finally perform, you know, it's a weird feeling. They roll like, you know, they roll the marimba out. And I walk. I'm not used to being up front. There's the conductor. The orchestra's back. is I'm, My back is to the orchestra. I'm side to the conductor. And he looks at me and says, are you ready? <laughs> and I'm shitting in my pants. 500 people in front of big opera hall. And we start. And I'm going, oh, my God, I got this. It's all memorized, you know. I got this. And I get into the performance. And the very last page, right before the cadenza, where I have two mallets and I pick up two more mallets. And it's just like, go, 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 up and down this thing and I'm like I got it I got it there's a couple of missed notes but I tore it up it was huge that was like the big you have made it and then I get into the Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra per my teacher and I turn it down because while before I'd gotten that position I started studying drum set for the first time with real badass Teacher from Berkeley was a jazz drummer, Alan Dawson, and in New York, one of the biggest sessions, the Hal Blaine of New York, Gary Chester, and I'm studying, and I'm practicing eight hours a day, and I want to be in the Beatles again. We'll take a quick break and come back with more of my conversation with legendary drummer Kenny Aronoff, recorded live at the TuneIn Studios in Venice, California. This week, I'm speaking with a veritable rock star behind a drum kit. In the past, I spoke with Tony Hawk and the head of YouTube and Google Music, Lior Cohn. Check out the archives of the show to learn how people double down on their passions to make it big in their respective industries. Subscribe to the podcast on TuneIn, Apple, or your podcast player of choice. 
Okay, let's get back to my conversation with legendary drummer Kenny Aronoff. So, in all this time you're in Indiana, the dream of the Beatles had evaporated? Or you yeah, still- I focused on the—I mean, I always played in bands, but— yeah, the dream, I was focusing on my, my to get through college, to do an excellent job and get a job in, a, you know, a, presumably a symphony orchestra. And can you still play the marimba today? I just pulled it out. Uh, I have a marimba uh, because uh, the, pre- the president of Kodak Film wants to do a documentary on Kenny. And when he f- I played him that piece, he went, dude, we need an excerpt of that in the documentary. So I started to pull the marimba out with the idea that I would learn, a work up a, a, a part of that piece. Just, you know, and, uh, oh, yeah. I, I, I could get back up, just, you know, just putting in the time. Right, right. So how do you end up with Mellencamp? Well, so I turned on Jerusalem. I'm living at home. I'm humbled and, like, here I am, I played with Bernstein. Now I'm back in my own house where I grew up, practicing eight hours a day, traveling trying to play in some bands in New York and a bunch of guys from Indiana called me up said we want to start a band with the idea the business model is get a record deal sell records go on tour like the Beatles I went and one of the dads invested 30 grand this is 1977 right. that's a lot of money we've got a truck lights PA and we're in a band house loved it moved back there after three years, we didn't get a record deal, and I decided, I'm 27, I decided I, gotta, I should probably go to New York. I knew more people in New York than L.A., so I'm going to move. And then I hear, about two weeks leaving, I hear about this Johnny Cougar guy, a singer-songwriter, said, Johnny Cougar just fired his drummer last night or something. They got in an argument. And I started thinking, oh, that's that guy on MTV. I'm not a huge fan of his music. You know, I was more into fusion, you know, more technique. When you're younger, you want to play as many notes as possible. And this was a songwriter. And I went, but then on the other hand, I was into the Beatles and the Stones and songs. So it was in my blood. So I went, wait a minute. This guy's touring. He's making records. I want this bad. So I call up. I had the guitar player's number, and he said, well, call me a couple of weeks. We're just going through some stuff. I call me. He says, um, John had asked around. Who's the best drummer in Bloomington? And people says, you need to check out this guy, Kenny Arnold. I'd earned that, that name from just being a hard worker and the guy that's always going for it. You know, it just, it just exuded out of me. So um, I get an audition, and I said, what should I do? And they said, uh, be familiar with the John Cougar record, which had I Need a Lover on I don't know if you know that. And yeah, so I, covered by Bat Benatar. Yeah, and which gave him some money. <laughs> so the, the thing is, they said, be familiar with it. With, with my training, I wrote every note out and memorized every song. I was practicing my six hours, six to eight hours a day. That was, that I didn't realize, but that was the, the discipline I'd learned at Indiana University and UMass and Aspen and Tangwood that prepared me unusually for a rock band uh, audition. And, and then I would like literally go, I'd yell out a song and start playing it without the music. I mean, I had it down. So I, I show up at John's house, <laughs> almost didn't get to audition. First of all, my beat-up $500 car is leaking oil on his driveway. He's looking at that, looking at me. I'm dressed not cool. I have a beard, and I didn't know what cool was back then, and uh, had no style. And, and then he sees me pull out this mammoth drum kit, <laughs> you know, double bass drum, 12 toms, a billion cymbals. I walk up to him and says, hey, John Kenny. It was John Mellencamp. Turns around and walks into the house. I'm like, wow. 
this guy is not a happy guy. He was going through a divorce also. And I didn't also realize, and I say in my book, I mean, dude, here's a guy from Indiana. He goes to get a record deal. His manager, Tony DeFries, that gave Bowie his name, Ziggy Stardust. John makes a record. He shoves the record across him, and John goes, who's Johnny Coo? He says, that's you. He says, that's not my name. I mean, he's crippling the rust belt. He goes, he probably went home and got his ass kicked by his uncles that, that resolved everything with fist fights. You know what I mean? <laughs> they were like bricklayers, you know? Not only did he have his name, and he said, well, if you want your record to come out, your name's Johnny Cougar. So he gets, he, he takes that and then loses his deal a year later. And now he's Johnny Cougar. This guy was not a happy guy. He was fighting, and I didn't know anything about it. I was just happy to be playing in a band that was on the radio. John was in fear of losing his deal again. So I auditioned, and I said, uh, they said, do you know any of the songs? I said, I'm familiar with some of the songs. And I picked one. I picked one, and I'll, I'll never forget it. I mean, I just destroyed everything. I broke cymbals, sticks. I figured, well, they must play loud in arenas, and John's mouth is open. His eyes are bugged out. He gets up after two songs, goes upstairs, and yells, Mike, get up here. Mike goes up, and I'm packing. I'm nervous. I really want this. Mike comes down, looks at me, smiles, shakes my hand, says, Welcome to hell. <laughs> and I'm going, like, what does he mean by that? <laughs> I found out. That was the beginning, and, I, and I'll try to make this quick. I tell everybody I'm going to L.A. to make a record at Cherokee Studios on Fairfax. I am so excited. I've told everybody. I get here, and I'm staying at the Chateau Marmont and uh, Rock and Roll Hotel also. And in two days, John, we have a band meeting. John says, you're not on the record. And as he starts to say, you go back to Indiana, I said, no fucking way am I going back home. And I'm scrambling. I'm trying to negotiate a deal. I'm, I'm humiliated. And I'm thinking in my head, don't you understand? I played with Bernstein, blah, blah. Had nothing to do with serving this song or getting a song on the record. I ask drummers all the time, what's your purpose when you're making a record? Of what's your purpose as a drummer? And they fumble around. And I say, the purpose of a drummer when you're making records is get the song to be number one. That's it. Every part, every idea, everything you say, everything you think, the goal is to get the song on the radio to be number one because when it does, then you made millions for the company. Then they say, who played on it? Oh, Kenny, let's get him on the next one and the next one and the next one. And that's how I ended up on so many hits. And being a team player and getting along and adjusting. Monday, it's B.B. King and Bonnie Ray. Tuesday, it's Elton John. Wednesday, it's the Smashing Pumpkin. I mean, they're all different. Everything is different, and you have to be able to adapt. And so I, I didn't have any of that yet, so I was, I was fighting, and I just said, John, I'm not going home. I'll, uh, I'll sleep on the floor. I said, Are you, am I still your drummer? And he said, yeah, but you're not playing on the record. He was perplexed. He didn't know what to, why I was asking. I said, I'll sleep on the floor. You don't have to pay me, which was probably the deal breaker. And then I did. I watched these guys, and I learned from them, and I was like, wow, that was quite an education about tuning, how to play these radio-friendly drum parts that serve the song. I went home and set up my eight-hour day practice routine, got Stones records out, Creedence records out, ACDC records out, started to try to... I mean, it's much easier to learn something that's technically hard than to learn how do you practice simple. There's no book on simple. Simple is... A, it's like looking through a... Like a it's like looking through a... Uh, a uh, microscope where playing technicals looking through a telescope 
they're both valid, just different directions. So I, I was befuddled. How do you, so the only way you could do is repetition. I just kept playing the Stones records, started to understand it. And let me jump two years later. So that I, album you didn't play on was American Fool. No. I did American Fool. I did. It was Nothing Matters and What If It Did. Okay. So he gets, Which was not successful. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't considered successful even though he had two singles in the top 40. But he almost, but... What you, were the two singles from that album? This time, I think I'm right. really in. He, he did a video with Edie, the Egg Lady from that crazy right. movie. And then uh, uh, the other one was uh, Ain't Even Done With The Night. Kind of an R&B thing. Cropper was the producer, Steve Cropper, you know. And, uh, and uh, I didn't know this, but you're right. It was not considered successful. When we were making American Fool two years later, which that got two Grammy Awards. The most now, the story on that is they finished the record and the label said, we don't want to put this out. No, he's right. Because after nine weeks, I felt like I'd been, <clears throat> and this is where I came up with the iconic Jack and Diane drum part, fighting for my life, um, thinking that if I don't c come up with something, I'll be replaced again or fired. And I come up with that song was off the record, gone. Nobody knew what to do with it. And I programmed this drum machine thing because I wanted it, which I thought is hideous. I'm being replaced now, not by a human, by, by a machine. I went, this is, what's going on here? And then they, that wasn't good enough, so I had to come up with this. They wanted, like, present, part the Red Sea right now. Now. I'm like, what? I have to come up with this drum part. Thank God I did. Became John's biggest, most successful single. Uh, I made million dollars for the company, not for me, but he he's still like one of the is one of the greatest songs played from the eighties. And after we after that, I go home. I felt like I'd been in Afghanistan for nine weeks. John calls me up two weeks later, and says, "We're not done. We got only four songs. Record label doesn't like it. Uh, we only got four songs. Two guys had gotten fired. Me and John almost got in a fist fight. John was a complete it, manic." crazy man and he you know did some crazy stuff and i just went after him anyway we're now in the band with our tail between our legs and that's where john wrote hurt so good and we came back out here six months later and recorded at cherokee the same room that i was told not to play in finished the record and the, and i was in the same room at the chateau marmont when jack and diane went to number one the first song that came on off of that record that let off was Hurt So Good. It stayed at number two for six weeks. It just, and this is on the top 100. This meant something. Back then... When the top 100 meant something. Yeah. It was, it's for those listening, when you were in the top 100, you couldn't get away from that song. It was on every station on the radio. And then we had MTV, so we were on... We, it was obnoxious. Just, you couldn't get away from us. And then they say, it started to go down a little bit, and they said, release Jack and Diane. They released Jack and Diane. It creeps up. Jack and Herzl Good didn't leave. Now we have two singles in the top ten. That's huge. And we, John's career seriously launched then. That was like, all right, sold millions of records, won Grammys. Uh, we were on it Saturday Night Live. We were on every TV show imaginable. And I was in the room at Chateau Marmont when the song went to number one, Jack and Diane, and the same room where I got told not to play on the record but my fear was holy shit now everybody thinks I can do this again can I how do I prepare for that how do you practice there's no method it, I was very insecure about like oh my god I gotta do this again I'm not really number one no way oh man what do I do what do I practice I gotta do this again 
and obviously I okay, did. Did you get the proper respect from John in terms of your addition to Jack and Diane? He never would, would tell me such a thing. As a matter of fact, he told me, and years later I thought about this, he said, you know, the thing that makes that song is that guitar part. <laughs> now, to me, it sounds like now I think he wanted me to sign off on it or something. You know what I mean? Drums don't mean anything. Hell not. The drums, the programming, the drums were a big part of that. But I, John would never tell me ever to my face that I was doing a good job. He just, he was like the Bobby Knight coach of Indiana University, just completely, be, you know, Bill Belichick. Well, I don't know about Bill Belichick, but, you know, Bobby Knight, he's just never get a compliment. It's like he, he gets his people to always fight to be better. And John, for 17 years, I was trying to come up with beats that would make his songs unique. And that was my job. To what degree, what in this process did people start to pay attention to you as an individual? Yeah, uh, scare, when the... Well, about the, the American Fool, but then the Uh-Huh record, I started to get a sound. We were starting to, we pushed the drums up front. John wanted our songs to blow any song that came on the radio before us and after us. It's great mentality. It's like, so I want the drums loud, I want vocal, I want this thing to, to just be the loudest thing on the radio. And it was, and it worked. Because we were competing with Eye of the Tiger and... Ebony and Ivory. And then <laughs> her so good. It was like ACDC, you know? And uh, so I get hired to do, I have to say, it was actually probably after Scarecrow. In the Scarecrow record, my sound became locked down as this, whoa, what are they do? Who is that drummer? That sound, that so powerful, it was like a drum record, simple drum parts. So then I get calls to do like Brian Setzer's first solo record, uh, Night Feels Like Justice, Belinda Carl, Heaven on Earth, which went to number one. And I'm starting to get these calls, you know, to, to record. And then uh, John in 88, we went from, I went from number, uh, 1980 to 88, John on the, it was like Amer uh, Nothing Matters What It Did, which I didn't play drums on, American Fool, which I played drums on, Uh Huh, which had Pink House's Authority and Coma Down. Then it was Scarecrow, now we're a arena rock band, two, we're selling millions of records in Jubilee, which we rechanged this, a whole, we came up with a whole new sound of violin and accordion together, Americana, and we're selling out arenas, and then John quits. Last show of the Jubilee tour, hands me a bonus check when they actually had bonus checks. He says, I quit. And I took it literal. He didn't quit, but I thought he, I just got divorced, had car payment, child payment, uh, you know, mortgage, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm at the mercy of this guy. I never saw it coming. He can just quit. He's got millions in the bank. I don't. He can quit whenever he wants. I'm like, that will never happen again. And that's where I went. I freaked out, and then I started to look at the same thing everybody else saw, but look at it different. I went, I've been working with one rock star for eight years, and I'm going to go work for all the other ones. And so I started coming out here. To what degree did you pitch people, and to what degree were they looking for you? Both. I was all over the radio, and then when they started hearing, and I was coming out here, and one day I get this call. Hey, Kenny, it's Don. Don was. I'm like... From was not was? He says, yeah. How would you like to play on an Iggy Pop record? Now, Don was really just beginning. He was renting a house up in Laurel Canyon. He says, now, Don, you know, was not was. be honest with you, I go to the record plant to meet him, and I go right up to the, the singers, the black singers. I thought he was a black guy. <laughs> and I go, 
so Don, and then he says, Sweepy goes, I ain't no Don Was. And I go over to Don Was, not knowing it's Don Was, said, Dude, when is Don going to get here? And Don starts bursting out laughing. <laughs> he's barefoot, he's got the afro, right. he's laughing. He says, I'm Don Was. I'm like, What? You didn't sound like that on the phone. I was laughing my ass off. And Sweepy is laughing. All those guys are laughing. So Don says, look, Iggy wants to meet you first, which I thought was cool because he it's vibe. So I go to his house, and, you know, Iggy's laying down on the couch, and he says, you know, I played timpani in high school in Detroit. And I'm like, wow, I played timpani too. And he liked me. So I played on that record, and one night when Don said, Don, they said, Don has to leave. He's going to the Grammys. He wins two Grammys for Nick of Time and one for Love Shack, B-52s. All of a sudden, Don is getting a ton of calls. Now I do Bob Dylan's record with him. Now I do Bob Seger with him. Now I do Elton John with him. And then I've been working with Don since 1989. And still, so you still work with his Bob yeah, Sessions? The big thing I do with Don is we do these big, huge extravaganzas like the, uh, the uh, Greg Allman tribute. So right. I get to play with 20 artists, the Merle Haggard tribute, where I'm playing with Loretta Lynn and Keith Richards and Don Henley, and I mean, just one after another. And then I did the uh, Kenny Rogers tribute. With, you can imagine, well, you know, Dolly Parton, Lionel Richie, all these. It was just, and then, and then that, and then having done the Kennedy Center honors, for the viewers listening, it's like I write meticulously every single note out. Uh, that I'm going to play. I have tempo markings. I have uh, vocal cues. I have guitar cues. Don basically, he's the musical director. But once the show goes, I'm 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 counting off the tempos, ending all the songs. Uh, he he hands the baton to me, and I'm timing. I know the script of the show, the flow of the show. I'm looking over to see when Don Henley walks on, looking for the next artist. Are they going to speak into the mic or are they not? And I have to make a decision. i got my hands up in the air. I've got the click going in my ear. I've grabbed the attention of the people, the guitar players, or the keyboard player. This is, get ready, one, two, three, four. And as soon as the song's over, i got a click going for the next song. So it's already going. Because you could go from 122 to 120. It's not much, but it makes a difference with vocals. So Don... I make Don's life easier. I mean, I'm making tweaks and adjustments on charts until 90 minutes before the show, and it's a 16-camera shoot, and they're recording it. I can't mess up. 90 minutes before the show, I get all my charts ready, and I take pictures of them, put them on my iPad, put them in order, and usually I have 30 minutes to eat and get ready, and then I'll do this whole performance. Let's just say, hypothetically, you're booked, and they can't get you. That just happened. Okay, who do you say to get? I let them decide. <laughs> Great answer. Okay, so Mellicamp decides he's not retiring. Meanwhile, you've built this whole business from yeah. session work. How does it end with you and Mellicamp? Well, that was the beginning of headbutting because now I took myself off the small, teeny retainer. I mean, that's such an obvious flare up in the sky. But I, you know, I thought, well, you know, this way he can't tell me when he wants me. But you don't tell him, Mellencamp, retainer or not. When he wants you, he wants you. And this has happened before uh, or after that. What I was saying to John was like, I'm making more money in the studio. And I, and, and in the studio than I am with you. And I've made you millions. That's what I'm thinking in my head. And I'm treated with respect and nice. And John, I'm not even going to put him down. I'm just saying it wasn't his demeanor to be... Nice, like nice, nice. 
And so I would like be in the car those last five years after we got back together and then we back, you know, when we finally get back together officially as a band in 91 and I'm driving to the studio, come on, we're going to rock, we're going to rock. And I'd get in there and John was going through a lot of, I mean, in all fairness to John, he was like running all the business. He was dealing with interviews, he was dealing with the record labels, he was dealing with managers, he was dealing with merchandise, he was dealing with just everything. And I think, you know, he had, you know, relationship issues. It was just tons of stuff. And then he had a heart attack eventually. And it was like, it was so much fun. Probably when I get in the studio, he'd have sunglasses, he'd be smoking a cigarette, the blinds would be drawn, and it was just depressing. And once again, no insult to him, but he was suffering. But I'd walk in there and I would feel it. And it was no fun. And I'd be like, come on, let's go. Uh, We'd be in this dark place for an hour and a half now. All right, let's cut this song. And I'd be, like, constantly trying to coach myself. And, like, no disrespect to John at all, man. He was going through a lot, man. He was running the whole show. But it wasn't fun to be around. So eventually, John called me, and I was doing something, and I said, I can't make it. I think I was with Little Feet out here. Well, just cancel. Tell them. You got to tell them that you're not available when I call you. I said, it doesn't work that way. They... You know, producers build uh, rhythm sections. They want Kenny in this studio with that bass player, and if I'm going to constantly be bailing, it ain't going to work. And there was no... It eventually ended where we parted ways, you know? And what's your relationship with him now? If I play with him, like I've done stuff with him, we joke, like I did the Merle Haggard tribute. He'll come up and slug me in the arm, you know, and we'll stand in front of each other, and, and you know, he's a very serious guy, but I, our conversations are fun, funny, you know, it's kind of like we make, he'll dig, make a dig at me, but it doesn't bother me. Okay, so you're playing like the Merle Haggard tribute. Have you ever played with him in his band? I played with Merle, another Don was saying, you know, Willie Nelson and Merle came on to do Poncho and, Poncho and Lefty, Lefty. and they were, uh, for some event, I played with Merle a bunch of times. You know, okay, but in terms of John Mellencamp, oh, not in his band. No, it's only one of these things where, like the Obama inauguration, and that's and that's how I broke the ice. I was playing the Obama inauguration. I played with twenty four artists. One was Mellencamp, and I thought I'm, I don't want to wait. It's going to be awkward. So if wait till I see him. So I called him up on the phone. I go, John, it's Kenny. Hey, Kenny. Oh. Oh, Kenny, how are you? He was really friendly. So listen, I want to let you know that it's really cold on stage. We're outside, and you're up where Lincoln is, and we're down below you. So you really are kind of alone. I just know you like to be around the band. He says, well, I just want to know, you still hitting a lot of cymbals? I went, yeah, and we're doing Pink Houses. I said, you know the third chorus where you sing? Stop singing. It's a drum solo, and it's just cymbals going crazy. And he goes, listen, motherfucker, I'm going to come down there and take those cymbals <laughs> off. And I said, I hope you do. I'll get more camera time. <laughs> it was kind of... He really wanted to know if his, he was performing right after Biden's speech because he wanted the, the attention, uh, you know. Okay, so is Mike the only guy left from the original band? That's right. I went and saw them here at the Hollywood Bowl, and I have to say, it wasn't the rock band that I was in, but it was cool, man. The songs were great, except he plays Jack and Diane acoustic guitar when it got to the drum fill. He just skipped it. <laughs> he didn't even play. He just 
Well, that's a tribute to you on some level. Some okay, level. so now you're playing sessions, but you also go out on the road with Melissa Etheridge. Yeah, for 10 years on and off. Joe Cocker for 10 years on and off. Pumpkins for one year. Uh, Bob Seger for one year. And Fogarty, now I'm up to 25 years. Okay, so first you're playing sessions. At what point do you, decide, do you end up going on the road on tour? You know, I, this is what makes me different. It's like, for the viewers out there, usually you're either a session drummer or you're a touring drummer. So a couple of us, like Jeff Percaro did it. Uh, J.R. Robinson, but nah, J.R. didn't tour that much. You didn't want to ever leave town because you didn't want to do sessions. What I did was I was living in Indiana. I was recording in L.A. a lot, but Nashville was only four and a half hours south of me. So I started a whole business down there. I was making, you know, playing with Johnny Cash, the real the real guys. Uh, you know, Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings. And, and then when the country pop schlock started coming, I was playing on that too. But <laughs> I, I, uh, I, 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 I was juggling everything. And in New York sometimes, and when I went on tour with Seeger and Melissa, I struck a deal like this. I got paid a lot, but I said, you pay me on show day. On days off, you don't have to pay me. But those are my days. And I would fly anywhere to make records and keep it all going. But aren't there issues of getting back in time for the show? I got two big ones. Recently, Fogarty, I'm in Mumbai, India, with my band Supersonic Blues Machine with Eric Ells and Billy Gibbons. And I'm being promoted. So this is the classic thing. Fogarty's get a gig. I'm not on retainer. I don't have any. They said, we got a gig the day after. And I'm like, ah, I can make it, but it's going to be, I, I can make it, but I'm going to be in Mumbai the day before. So you got to cancel. I went, I can't. It's my band and I'm being promoted. It's Kenny Aronoff. It's my band. you got to cancel it. So I said, let me see what the flights are. You know, instead of like, there is no no. Right. I, that's my new thing. There's no no. You just just come up with, keep the conversation going. So I'm like, okay, look, I will, let me look into this. So I said, I'll make it work. So I leave the stage. Uh, I figured out I catch a 4 a.m. flight from Mumbai to Dubai, three-hour layover, unless there's a, a military coup or a sandstorm that goes to Houston. My only problem is I land in Houston at 5.30, I have to be on stage at 9 and at San Antonio. The problem was the rush hour is insane. <laughs> so flying from Mumbai <laughs> is not the problem, yeah. but getting into Texas is the problem. So I tell them that, like, no, no, no. I said, okay, let me see what else I can do. I get a private jet. Somebody offers me a private jet for $500 if I get them VIP passes. Now I land, I can get there by 6.30. I tell them that. They're like, well, what? They're, they, they can't believe I got that together. <laughs> They're like, well, what, about, what if something really happens? I said, and I went to the next level. I got my buddy Stephen Perkins to sub for me in case I didn't make it. He went there, learned the whole show, did sound check, and I made it on time, and I did the show. And then What the, kind of shape were you in? Oh, I would love that. I was like piss and vinegar. I, I, the fact that, you know, that it was a challenge made me, the adrenaline flowed and we kicked ass. The next day though, we had to, we got on Don Henley's jet and flew all the way to New York or somewhere east. And that's when I felt it. I was like, oh man. And we had a couple shows there, corporate shows and I was hurting. Yeah. So this was with Fogarty and Henley. No, we just ha for some reason we were on his jet. I just use that as a cool thing to say. Okay, but so, uh, but, but 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 um, what was I going to say? I you know when you know I was in 
business class or first class. So the, the, that flight, I've slept the whole, you know, eight hours. Right. So, so who have you not played with you want to play with? Well, my super group, I've played with Sting, but my ideal super group would be Sting, obviously, on bass singing and Jeff Beck on guitar. Have you played with Beck? Played on Blaze of Glory with him, but never played with him. You played the drums on Blaze of Glory? Yeah. With bon I, mean, I, I forget, you know. Yeah. So uh, yeah, and Jeff Beck was. He, this is a great story. John, one day I get a call out of the blue. I'm in Nashville. The guy says, "Hey, Kay, it's John Bon Jovi." I'm like, "What?" He says, "Hey, I got this project. I want to record two songs for this movie soundtrack. Are you available?" Uh, blah blah. I says, "Yeah." So I'll call you in a couple of weeks. Call comes. I got four songs. Oh my god, that's awesome! Four. Okay, cool. I'll call you in a couple of weeks. Dude, I, I'm doing the whole soundtrack. I'm do, I got a whole album. It's a whole concept. I'm even acting the movie. Okay, we're going to nail it down. You still available? To, I said, yep. Call in a couple of weeks. Calls you and says, I got good news and bad news. I'm like, oh, no. What's the good news? Jeff Beck is on the record. What? My hero. What's the bad news? Uh, Jeff wants Terry Bozio to play. Ah! <laughs> so I went, no. But, you know, Terry's great. Jeff's great. I get off the phone, and I start pacing back and forth. And I'm so bummed out, you know. And then I get a call from the co-producer, Danny Korchmar. Hey, Kenny, it's Danny. What's up, man? He says, um, hey, man, get your drums there on Tuesday at 9 a.m. I went, Danny, have you spoken to John lately? Yeah, why? He says, I'm not playing on the record. Terry Bosio says, what? That's not yet. You're the right guy for the record, Terry. And then he said something. Very, very smart that I should have known better. There's no way Jeff Beck is going to be there on a tracking session. Let's do take number 400. No. You record the song. You bring Jeff in. He does a couple of takes and it's done. He's not going to be there making a record with Bon Jovi from like, you know, 11 in the morning to 11 at night. That's not his style. I was right. So he says, so anyway, tell your tech to bring the drums in by 9 a.m. So I played on the record. So... Why is the drummer always the business guy in the group? I don't know. Maybe you've learned to have to defend yourself. You're the guy, you know, all the music jokes. You know, you got the band right. and the guy, the drummer. Oh, yeah, and then we got a drummer. You know, I don't know. I think, uh, uh, may, I don't know. That's a good question. Maybe, But, but that's, do you agree with that, that usually the, the drummer is the business guy? The, the drummer, in many cases, Danny Serafin from Blood, Sweat, and Tears, uh, uh, Mick Jagger is the Stones, but Charlie Watts, it all goes through Charlie. You know, he's one of the guys. Uh, silent leader. Um, and that's just for my intuition. Um, I, I, you know, there's other... Oh, Don Henley definitely right. running the show. You know, um, um, I think the, the drummers are, you know, we, we have to defend ourselves, stick up for ourselves, protect yourself, make sure you don't get screwed. You know, maybe that's part of it. What's the most memorable gig you've ever played? May not be the best you performed, but your favorite. Where you go, I'm in the pocket. This is a great experience. Well, one of the most memorable ones besides the concerto was recording with the Buddy Rich Big Band. Scared the living crap out of me. I walk in there. I'm the last guy. There's a tribute record to honor Buddy Rich. And so they, bought, they got all these great drummers, and Neil Peart and Kathy Rich decided they should have Kenny Aronoff and, you know, a couple of rock guys that are big. So Kathy calls me up and says, I want you to pick two songs. So I pick jazz songs. I want, 
Actually, just one song, Big Swing Face. She says, because they sent me some rock songs that were like horrible. Buddy Rich wasn't a rock drummer, and the music wasn't good. So I picked this great jazz tune, big band jazz tune, and I'm excited. But I've got sessions booked three weeks before. Every, like, New Orleans, L.A., Nashville, Montreal. So I said, Kathy, I better book me as the last guy, last day, in case I don't make it. And then she calls me up a couple weeks before and says, look, everyone's doing two songs. And I'm like, oh, God. I don't know, I, want, I was about to say, I, I would love to, but I don't know if I can pull it off. Straight No Chaser. She says, we think you should do Straight No Chaser. I went, what? I says, all right, all right. Oh, now I'm nervous. It's really fast. And uh, so I said, well, okay, but I, I, I got the final say if it's no good. She said, okay. So I barely get any sleep the night before because I'm recording late and I have to fly from Montreal, go through customs. I get there, I'm so tired when I get to New York. I, I don't lay down on the bed, you won't wake up. And, and uh, so I, I purposely walked to the studio from the hotel just to keep myself awake. I walk in there and there's cameras and everyone's filming me and the band is looking at me and, and they looked at me like I was a janitor. Like, who's that guy? You know, like, and I'm like, oh, jeez, I'm like nervous. And so I eventually get the drums and it's a new Tama drum kit with a new shell. So. I'm trying to figure out how to tune these, and Neil Peart's going, let's go, the clock, you know, I'm the last guy, last day. So I go to the van, and I talk about the arrangement of Big Swing Face, and I say, well, we actually do it a little differently. I'm like, oh, no. So I make my adjustments, we record. After four takes, I go in there, and Neil says, all right, I want to listen to this, yeah. I said, you know, I need to do it again. I said, a little bit, a little, I, I can do it better. He said, oh, no, you only get four takes. I'm like, well, why didn't you tell me that in the beginning? Right. I'd be like, you know, okay, this is my last shot. I thought I have as much as I want. So they bring in the expert, Freddie Gruber. Freddie says, ah, the kid sounds great. So that was it. I got voted out. Now we're doing straight no chaser. Now I'm like fight mode. It's the, it's the Super Bowl. So I get in fight mode and uh, it's blazing fast. And it's a solo at the end. The thing that's miraculous, I played great. I'm reading music. I played great. The solo was impeccable. I mean, I'm not saying it was genius, but there was not one flaw like, oh, he's out of time or, oh, oh ooh. It was like, and it was just, and I'm telling you, when I was playing, it was so fast, I looked at my hands and went, wow, who's playing that? I can't play like this. Who's playing? And then I said, shut up, Kenny. Who's ever playing? He's doing a good job. You don't want to interfere <laughs> with that guy. It was literally an out of body. It was flowing. It was just that whole flow thing. And so, yeah, I have a, a lot of great experiences at Kennedy Center Honors and Obama Nuggets, but that one stands out because it was so different, so unique, so scary, so terrified, and I rose to the occasion, so it was extremely memorable. So you wrote a book, and for those people listening or interested, the book is not a typical rock memoir. It's really Kenny's story. It covers a lot of this stuff, but much more in depth. I really recommend it. I've read a lot of these books, just not because Kenny's cool. here, but it's really great. But you're also now, right, what's the name of that book again? That's called Sex, Drums, Rock, and Roll. Right. And I wanted to put a whole bunch of others. By the way, 300 cha pages got cut out. It's just too many sessions. But I wanted to put this this other thing in there, and so I decided to write another book. What an idiot. This book is more, are you living your life loud, are you dying on the vine? It's like how I became successful, how to make success. You're not born successful. There's no magic pill. How uh, just a little kid from a town of 3,000. I mean, everybody's got stories like this, but now I'm putting in some deeper Things like, you know, how to connect the head with the heart and, uh, you know, how you, you you can't do it just from your brain. You can make yourself do stuff, but you really have to connect with your heart to be exceptional.
And that's what I've, I've done a lot of work on that in the last year. And I'm starting to put that back in the book. This book will be, I mean, it's, it's, it's got team leadership stuff in it, but it really is how to, to beat your own demons and become successful. Now, your brother's a psychoanalyst. Have yeah. you discussed these issues with him? We, I've been starting to talk to him more and more about that, this stuff because he's, uh, you know, an executive coach, and I've been working with an executive, executive coach. It's brilliant stuff, you know. Some people think it's phony baloney. I think it's, a, it's amazing. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty good, and my brother does it. So we have these great talks. It's, it's, it's basically, you know, you, you know, we all have... We all created ways to survive as, as little kids. And so as an adult, you can't ever get rid of, like, those those triggers, you know, but you can come up with new agreements. That's what's happening to me. Okay, I got a new deal. When somebody, it's like, for example, it's not personal when John Fogarty wants to put me in a little plastic house that's they're discussing on stage to keep the sound away from his ears or something. At first you go like, I'm not getting that, you know. Now it's like, well, hey, man, he's just trying to do something that makes him feel good. It's not about me. That's a whole flip because you can go, I can't believe that person is talking to me like that. Well, a lot of times it's it's not even about you. It's about them. <laughs> you know, they're the ones going through the shit. You just happen to be in their way. So I, I'm handling things differently based on that. Not taking it personally, I can still decide whether I want to stick around or not, but it isn't because of that emotional trigger and dynamic. I don't know if that's the best example, but that's a tip of the iceberg of some of this stuff. And so to be successful, you have to be able to navigate through this stuff if you really want to have a a full career. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm breaking, writing the book. I'm, I'm really pushing the speaking business to be uh, inspirational because I love being in front of the drums, going back to the drums. It's just, uh, you know, the next step. You've been listening to Kenny Aronoff on the Bob Left Sets podcast. As you can tell, He's not only drummer extraordinaire, but raconteur extraordinaire. We could literally go on for another hour, I'm so, but I'm afraid of burning out my audience. You'll have yeah. to come back, tell some more rock and roll stories. Yeah. Kenny, thanks so much. Oh, dude. I, I, and all you fans out there, thanks for listening. Okay, till next time. Okay. Bob Left Sets with Kenny Aronoff. That wraps up this week's podcast with Kenny Aronoff. The guy had such great stories, I could have let him go on for hours. I was afraid of burning you out. Hopefully he'll come back with more rock and roll stories. Thanks for listening. Don't hesitate to email me at bobatleftsets.com with feedback and suggestions. I may not always respond, but I read every email. Till next time, I'm Bob Leftsets. <laughs>